Hi, this is John Hahn, and you're listening to Talking Blues. You fascinate me because you were in the advertising world, mm-hmm. and you decided to get into the blues. Right. I know it, was, it didn't happen overnight, and I know it, no. it, it took a while. Yeah. But um, tell me about getting into advertising. How did that happen? Well, I got into advertising. Um, I started working summers when I was in college. My father was in publishing. He was a publisher of, of Parents Magazine. Uh, so he was on a different side of, of the fence marketing-wise. And I knew I didn't want to get into any sort of a uh, a, he was very successful. I didn't want to get into any sort of a competitive thing with him. And um, so I got into advertising and I worked summers when I was in college. And then when I got out of college, I became a very young account executive. And those were the Mad Men days. And uh, it was loads of fun and it was great and enormous expense accounts and really pretty heady for a for a 22-year-old. Did you love advertising? I never loved it, but I did appreciate it, and I did know that it was uh, on the scale of different jobs that you could have, uh, with the worst being uh, you know, a, a bathroom attendant in Calcutta, and, 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 and the best being something highly profitable while you're still doing good for people, uh, those two sort of extremes, <laughs> that it, advertising was pretty good. The money was great. The, the people, for the most part, were really intelligent. Uh, they were attractive at a young age. That was important. Uh, and uh, I did a fair amount of traveling. So I started out as an account executive, and uh, one day the creative director said, uh, and I don't mean this to sound self-serving, but he said, you're a funny guy, you're a quick guy, what are you doing being an account executive? You should be a creative. And I always had tremendous respect for writers, and, uh, but, but it just would never dawn on me that I would ever be bright enough or talented enough to do this. So I said to him, why don't you give me a a little experiment and we'll see if I can do it before I come out of the closet and tell everybody in account work that I'm leaving to be a a creative. Can I I just ask you, while you were growing up, did you show any signs of creativity? Yeah, yeah. And what, what would that would have been? Well, I, I remember when I was in kindergarten. Uh, I, I'm sorry, when I was in nursery school before, I, uh, I must have been like five years old. They had us, the nursery school teacher, her name was Miss Segret. She had us all do a present for our mothers. And it was a hot plate. Basically, it was a piece of wood and we would have little thumbtacks and we were supposed to tap out our name uh, on, on these pieces of wood and mom would be able to put something hot from the oven on them. And uh, my, my first name being John and relatively short as opposed to Alexander and, 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 and Stanislaus, um, 
uh, had plenty of time to spare. So when it was done, when I had finished tapping out my name, I drew a face in the O of John. And I remember the teacher came over and she just said, you've ruined everything. Your mother's going to hate that. <laughs> and uh, all you were supposed to do was this. And I sort of, you know, I, I accepted it. I wasn't happy about it. Uh, and, but I wasn't really bothered by it. And I remember I gave it to my mother and what my mother loved most about it was that I had drawn the, the, mm -hmm. the picture inside. I can't believe the teacher would have said that. Yeah, yeah. Well, different times maybe, hopefully. I remember when I got into the eighth grade, there was an art class and the teacher did a, uh, a drawing that we were all supposed to uh, mimic. And I did it differently with all different colors. And I got the only F for a class that I've ever had in my whole life. And then when I was in high school, I started writing surrealist poetry. Uh, in college, I continued to do that for, and, uh, for extra credit. And it would get into the, the, uh, uh, the school literary magazine and things like that. And so I always... Um, yeah, I, I, I had a love for creativity and I had a natural leaning towards it. I mean, I still really, I, I feel the difference. I, I feel that I have some sort of, and this is really pompous, but I feel I have some sort of gift for that or at least a strong inclination towards doing that that you either have or you don't have. But when you, were, when you weren't doing it at work, and yeah. being an account rep, yeah. you didn't feel like you were missing anything. Uh, I did. I did. Oh, okay. I did. I mean, I always thought of, of things like that, and, and I always thought um, uh, it, would be, it would be great to do that. And, and the sort of, in quote, normal jobs that I would have, I always tried to take a different, more original approach to them. And I mean, the love that I have for writing is, I, I couldn't describe it for people. Uh, I, I would say that before I was formally writing, uh, aside from the poetry and things like that, uh, I was a, a, a big reader and I still am a, a big reader. Right. And you can't really be a good writer unless you read and you read a lot. And, and, and uh, um, so I always had an appreciation for that. And of course, I had this love of music. Tell me about the love of music. Where did that happen? Well, I grew up in Chicago uh, and uh, in a, uh, uh, on the north side of town, about uh, three blocks from Lake Michigan and a big park. Uh, I was an altar boy. I played uh, Little League baseball in two different leagues and in the winter time I played junior hockey. Uh, my dad as I had mentioned was at that time he was a space salesman with Parents Magazine and uh, my mom did uh, charity work and they were both pretty social and they would 
have parties and at the parties, I remember what I listened to growing up was uh, Nat King Cole, Sinatra, uh, Earl Garner, tons of Earl Garner. And they would always have the latest Broadway show albums, even though they lived in Chicago. They would have, for instance, Pajama Game featuring Bonnie Raitt's dad, John Raitt. And, and things like that. So I was always around, around um, music like that. And I thought that my, I felt that my parents, as opposed to the times, which was really uh, ran the gamut from how much is that doggy in the window to Rawhide by Frankie Lane, right. that my parents had pretty hip taste. And um, I, had, I had no... Uh, uh, knowledge of blues music whatsoever, and and but I would watch uh, American Bandstand every day, where I would be uh, had no interest in the uh, the Frankie Frankies and Fabians and and that whole lot, but would really love Chuck Berry, Little Richard, Fats, uh, Jerry Lee. And uh, just was totally turned on by that stuff and really, really loved it. Did you play any instruments? I didn't. When I got into high school, I went to Fordham Prep, which is uh, part of Fordham University. I lived in, uh, my family moved from Chicago to Manhattan when I was 12. And I, uh, when, I when I was about 16, I, I formed a rock band. And uh, I couldn't play anything except like 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 every guy at that time. I played very poor harmonica. And uh, by the way, eventually that was Shamika's dad's nickname for me, which was harmonica, <laughs> and uh, which was a, a compliment and a, a joke at the same time. What was that move like to come to New York from Chicago? You know what? At the time, it was awful. Because you lost your really friends, really awful. Because I told you I was involved in all these these sports activities. I had the eighth grade girlfriend, okay, and um, I had all my friends. And you're about to graduate. It's eighth grade. You've gone through all these years with these kids, and now I'm taken out of school and 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 switched into a, a whole a whole other thing, and. Um, I did the same things when I moved here and played on the teams and and all that stuff. But I really, for about a good a good year, I really missed mm-hmm. missed Chicago. Are you a Cubs or a White Sox fan? Uh, I'm a both fan, but but I grew up on the North Side, and so so the Cubs. Uh, and let me just take a brief uh, side sidewalk here. I was shooting a commercial and I was in LA and I was staying at the Low Santa Monica and I saw a man walking across the lobby towards the men's room and I thought, I know that walk. I don't know who that guy is, but I know that walk. And then he came out and I looked at him and it was Ernie Banks, most my hero when mm-hmm. I was when I was a kid. And I went up to him, and for me at that time, it was like meeting Mick Jagger or Groucho Marx or some other iconic figure. Right. And I went up to, to Ernie Banks. Now I'm in my 30s, 
And I said, Mr. Banks, I grew up watching you hit balls out on Sheffield Avenue. And he said, you did? And I said, yes. He said, well, why don't you come over here and talk to me about it? And we went over and we sat in a chair in the lobby and he asked me about growing up and, and uh, uh, who was on the team in those years and what are you doing now? And he was the nicest guy you can imagine. Wow. Yeah, he was just, he was, he was just great. So I don't know how I, I took that little sign. It's a great there, story, though. But, but, uh, <laughs> so are you, are you still a baseball fan? And I'm your still team a now? baseball fan. I, I, I am to a degree. I am to a degree. I think it's become increasingly less with all, the more teams that were added to the leagues, the less interest I had. And I don't know if it's, uh, it's just uh, you get older and you, you have other things that you're interested in, but... But not, not as much. I did shoot a commercial in, uh, in Tampa around, uh, it must have been around the year 2000 with Derek Jeter. I did a commercial for, uh, Skippy was introducing a product called Doubly Delicious. And it was a combination of Skippy and chocolate. And so my idea for the commercial was that, that I would have two Derek Jeters side by side, one dressed up as a Yankee and the other dressed up as just a man on the street. And they have a dialogue back and forth. And the basic concept was the Yankee Jeter says to the, the other Jeter, I'm going to tell you how to make the perfect double play. You take Skippy, and the other one says chocolate. You know, it says right. chocolate and Skippy, and they go back and forth, and you get the idea. And uh, and it was nice, and it was a a, a, a cute little spot. So uh, and Jeter was my favorite Yankee of all time. So that was really that was uh, that was fun. I, um, I also did a commercial, by the way, when I was much younger for Krylon spray paint. And that commercial featured Johnny Bench of the Red Legs, who nobody remembers anymore probably, but it, the idea was he had a bench and he said, uh, hi, I'm Johnny Bench, and this is Johnny Bench's bench, and you know now I'm gonna paint it. And at the end of the commercial, the announcer says, how did it turn out, Johnny? And he said, uh, no runs, no drips, no errors. And they ran with that tagline for about 17 years. Wow. So, so obviously when, the, when, when your boss said try the creative and you asked for a test, that worked out well. Tell me about that. First. Well, it was funny. They, they're not going to give a rookie anything big or sexy or national or highly visible. So at the time we had the American Motors account, which were cars like Gremlins and Pacers and Matadors and Ambassadors. And all those good-looking cars. All those real good-looking cars, right? And and uh, they were like mutants for cars. <laughs> and they were trying to get the dealer's account as well, which is a separate business. Right. And the idea was that if they could do a successful advertising campaign for a local dealer, that. Um, they'd have a shot of getting the National Dealership Association, and um, which basically consists of all those sales commercials you see on the, on the air, right. like we're seeing now, like crazy. 
And so they had a dealer on the west side. His name was Al Vitarelli, and uh, it was Manhattan American, and it was right almost on the river on the west side. And I went over to, to see him, and I met with him, and he can say, I said, well, what can't I say? And he said, you can say whatever you want uh, as long as you increase sales. So I went back and I created a character, him, and I called him Dumb Al. And I said, he's so dumb that he's inconveniently located at 65th Street and the West Side Highway. Uh, he's so dumb that, that uh, he, he gave all the bad deals to, to his relatives and good deals to other people and blah, blah, blah. And I would have sales like uh, make Al's kids cry for Christmas sales. These, these, these prices are so low that Al can't make money and his kids are going to be, you know, have nothing under the Christmas tree. And so I this did, is the first yeah, trial. Yeah. That's a pretty gutsy move, wasn't it? So, so, so we did that. His sales went up 25%. And I said to him, well, we're going to keep doing this, right? You, 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 you like it? And he said, I do. The only thing that makes me feel bad is that my kids... Are the other kids are picking on them at school and saying that their their daddy is a a, a dumbbell. Right. I said, well, you know that's kind of built into this thing, <laughs> and so that was a, a radio campaign, and it was so successful that it went to TV, and so we, the first commercial, I and this is horrendous, okay. Uh, so I apologize in advance, but I had him dress up. And in a bake like a baker, and with a baker's hat and 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 the white tunic and all that stuff, and he's carrying a a, a bowl of flour that he's mixing, and he walk and between two America Motors cars, and and he said uh, something like I can't remember all the dialogue. It was thirty years ago, but it was something like, uh, "Hi, I'm Al Vitarelli, a Manhattan American." And I'm cooking up the best deals in town. I'm baking up the best deals in town. And a guy off camera yells, did he said, say bacon? And he said, yeah, I said bacon. And I'm, I'm, I'm stirring up prices like you wouldn't believe. And the guy off camera says, did he say stirring up? And he said, I said stirring up. And then finally he said, uh, so uh, I've got the cars, I've got the deals, I've got the price. Come in now and don't miss out on your piece of the pie. And the guy says, did he say pie? And Al says, I said pie. And just as he said that, he gets hit in the face with two pies. And he, he wipes them off his face. And just as he wipes the last bit off, he gets hit in the face with the third pie. And uh, so that was, that was the high level of, uh, of sophistication that, uh, that, that, that we started with. And, uh, but it did well for them. And did you? And it got, and I got the gig and, and, and I switched. And at the time, the head madman, the head account guy said to me, I'm going to give you some advice. He said, in this business and advertising, you can do things one of two ways. You can do it the classy way and, and make steady good money and you'll make terrific money in the end. But that won't be as, as dramatic, or you can go down and dirty and go into creative and 
and all that stuff. And I said, well, I'm going down and dirty. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm so glad I did. And uh, it, was, it was a great way to make money and, and see the world and interesting people and stay in great places. Uh, and uh, of course, at the time, you think uh, this is a drag because I have to I have to get this approved by the people within the agency. Uh, then it has to be approved by the lawyers. Then it has to go to the clients, uh, the little clients first, and everybody has a comment about everything. So, so it's very difficult to get high quality things through. And I always tried to not only sell, but also to entertain at the same time because I was convinced that you had, uh, that the product would get an added bonus, both by goodwill, that you attempted to entertain me, right. and memorability and all that stuff. And that's the last thing that a lot of clients want because they just, well, why are we wasting time on that joke at the end when I could put in that it also, that, that, that the shampoo also cures baldness and, and uh, um, you know, bad hearing. Right. So that was that. But I have to tell you now in retrospect, and I still have friends who, who are in advertising and uh, they just think that with what I'm doing now, I really stepped in it. And, and, that, and I have to tell you, there's as good as advertising was compared to working construction, uh, nothing compares to what I do with music and writing songs and producing songs. And it's, it's, it's always been one of my first loves, music, reading, and, and travel. But it's, it's through your advertising that you got into writing songs. Right. And this is... Let me tell you how. Yeah. And, and had before that, you had never written a song, or had you written no, a song? No, I'd never written a song. You know, the, the, I'd written the poems. Right. So when you write TV commercials, everybody knows there's a few different varieties. You can write something funny, you can write something serious, or you can write a song. And so it wasn't long after I started in advertising that I was writing jingles. A jingle is basically 26 seconds long, and you have to get an incredible amount of information in there, make it rhyme, and make it memorable. So I started, I started doing jingles when, the, when, when you felt that the, 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 the product called for it or lent itself to it. And eventually I was working for Alka-Seltzer, was, was my client. I came up with a campaign for them, and no, it wasn't that campaign. Okay, so yes. don't even ask. It wasn't that one, and uh, but it followed that. What was about three campaigns after it, and it was a very. It wasn't a brilliant song, um, and it certainly wasn't a memorable line, like like the no runs, no drips, no errors was memorable. And I mean, oh, that's clever. Well, no one would have said that this was clever, but it got the message across. And what I did was I did like a, a Randy Newman type of song 
And the basis of the lyrics was everybody hates to eat and run. We'd rather take it slow. But the way this life is going, got to grab your food and go. When all that running round catches up with you at last, get yourself some Alka-Seltzer and you'll feel better fast. And uh, the Randy Newman version was kind of like, uh, I, I said, make it like it's a kid who this is the only song they know and they don't know it very well being played on the piano. Right. And we did that and we shot a series of vignettes in Australia and with people in all sorts of different situations where they had heartburn from running around too much. And then at the, the second half of the commercial, they were cured and they were happy and, and life was going on. Well, it was successful and they wanted to do radio. So I went to them and I said, uh, uh, you know, I produced basically this, this song is my idea. So why would we ha give it to a producer in-house to have them do it right. when I have my own ideas for this? So uh, I said, you could, you could do this song a number of different ways. You could do a country version, a rock version, a rockabilly, jazz, whatever you want. And I said, I think we can get a number of artists you'd be able to afford so that when the listener heard the commercial, they would not only say that tune is, there's that tune, but hey, wait a minute, is that Delbert McClinton singing that? Okay, right. you can't afford Paul McCartney, but you can't afford Delbert McClinton. And so we did this campaign and I went all over. I, uh, we did, uh, Delbert did the first two versions. Then I went to LA and I did a country version with uh, Chris Hillman of the Birds and the Burrito Brothers. Mm -hmm. I went down to uh, uh, Austin and I did uh, one with uh, Luann Barton. Oh who did Cherry Alka-Seltzer, <laughs> and uh, Chicago, Sun Seals, Coco Taylor, Sugar Blue, and up in uh, Bearsville, I did one with uh, Levon Helm. Wow. And uh, in the process, so, so then people would come to me and say, Manufacturers Hanover Bank needs a song. Uh, Orange Crush, Diet Orange Crush needs a song. And then I, I would start doing those. So... I know you did poetry. Yeah. Did, did writing songs come easy to you? Um, and especially with that format when you have this limited boundary of... Well, I'm going to tell you, writing songs is a hell of a lot easier than writing a commercial. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in that, that you have a, 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 you know, a broader, larger palette and, and three minutes or four minutes is a lot easier than 26 seconds. Yeah. On the other hand... Um, that's, uh, but writing a song is, it. you know what, here's, here's the thing. In a way, do, doing a jingle for a product is like figuring out a puzzle. You know, how do I, you, I would always start with the ending. I would have the last line. Uh, like for Diet Crush Soda, uh, which was an orange soda drink. I, would, I, I had this line, which was, peel me a Diet Crush. And then I thought, oh, what about peeling off your clothes because you look so good because you've dieted? Right. And so that's a puzzle. And you get the idea and you don't know where the idea comes from. 
but then you write it. Uh, a song is, uh, I often get the last line or the concept first, but it's a much more complicated thing to, to make it interesting and to make it poetical and to tell the story in a different way. And um, so they're different, you know, they're, they're, they're different forms. I mean, I always like to think that, that advertising, uh, when, when, when advertising is really good, it is an art form. It's a low art form, okay? It's, it's not Rembrandt, it's, it's, but it, 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 it can be art if it's done, if it's done. Yeah, but I wonder, I'd argue whether yeah. it's really low Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, I think there are certain yeah, things that yeah, are just yeah, beautifully yeah. done. Yeah, yeah. I started out doing that, and I wrote a commercial for Manufacturers Hanover Trust, a bank that doesn't exist anymore. And the 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 jingle house that was going to do my song uh, said, uh, you know, this is kind of bluesy. There's a guy who lives uptown. His name's Johnny Copeland. And I'll bet we could come get him to come in and play on this. I said, I know Johnny Copeland, he's great. And my wife and I had seen, seen him at a club down here called Tramps. So they got Johnny in and uh, he played on this song that I, I did for Manufacturers Hanover. And he was going to be playing at the Cotton Club, uh, I guess about three days later. And he invited me up there and uh, I got to know his family and I got to know him and we talked and I said, uh, um, when, when is your next record coming out? Oh, I don't, I don't have a label. I don't, uh, I don't have a record coming out. And so I went and I spoke with my wife and I said, this guy is really good. He's really great. I don't understand what's happened here, but... Can I ask you what year this is? Huh? What year was this? probably about 85 or something and uh, maybe 86 whenever Shamika was eight years old and she's about to be 40 next April not that you want to reveal her age or anything. no 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 let me repeat that she's about to be 40 next April okay uh, and uh, uh, anyway I, I went to him and I said and this was a gross exaggeration. I said, I know some people in music. If you want to put together a demo, uh, I'd love to work with you. And uh, uh, you put up half the money and I'll put up half the money. And I was just looking to have a cool life experience. I mean, I couldn't see anything was going to replace the kind of dough that I was making in advertising to be crass. Right. And um, so we got together. And uh, I had some friends who, who recommended inexpensive studios. And uh, we went to one in Brooklyn. And we recorded four songs. And I thought they were great. And Johnny and I really hit it off. And uh, we decided, instead of just doing a demo, we'd do the whole album ourselves. With the idea of shopping around? Or yes. releasing it yourself? Yeah, with the idea of shopping it around. And this was, there was no doing it yourself in those days. Right. So um, we did it. I ran into Dr. John in a, in a bar and I asked him if he'd play on it. 
And he said, man, I go anywhere, anytime to play with Johnny Clyde. And I said, well, this isn't just bar talk. I said, I really want to do this. He says, okay. He says, we're, we're going to do it. And so we got him. I got Buckwheat, Zydeco. And Johnny brought in Fathead Newman and Hank Crawford from Ray Charles Horn section. And uh, we sold it. And uh, I took it around and I sold it to Polygram Verve, which at the time had a series with everybody from Gatemouth, Charles Brown, James Cottonwell. And, and, and they, Johnny got a four record deal out of it. So are you now acting as a manager or just no, a business no, partner? No, I'm, I'm just a partner on this one project, co-produced Flying High with Johnny. Mm. And at this time, Shamika was eight years old, the soon-to-be 40-year-old Shamika. Not to and, mention her age and, again. No. And um, I remember I met her at a party, a birthday party for her dad, and she had a whole bunch of her little cronies her size were there. And she went up and she said, this is Mr. John Hahn, and he's my manager. And everybody started laughing. I mean, she wasn't even singing that. I don't, I don't know how, how or why she said something like that. But um, she did. And Johnny did everything he could to encourage her to sing. He had a song that he had written for her called Stingy. I got a boy, sweet as he can be. The only problem I can see is he's too stingy. Stingy with his love for me. And she'd get up and sing that at parties and stuff. And then I wrote a little song for her called uh, My Daddy Sings the Blues. The best blues in the world. Nobody sings them better except for Daddy's Little Girl. Go tell Coco Taylor, tell Big Time Sarah too. They want to sing like me, they better take a lesson or two because my daddy sings the blues. And uh, people would crack up. So just this kind of a, a game and because we were all like family, we would, we would go out to, they, they had moved from Harlem to where we would hear gunshots outside while we were having dinner, a horrible neighborhood, Shamika will tell you, to her dad got her out, uh, got the family out to uh, Teaneck. And uh, so we'd spend every Sunday out there having a barbecue. And when, when, when uh, dinner was over, we'd sit in the living room with some guitars. And I'd play harmonica and Johnny played guitar and Shamika would sing. And Hank Williams, six Hank Williams songs in a row. Jimmy Reed from one Jimmy Reed song to the next. And uh, it did was you, a, a real sense of family. Did you know then she had talent? Not really, not really, but uh, it, there was something about her. There was a, 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 a childlike charisma that was, she was extremely likable. And, and we had a, um, Johnny put together a little vanity night for her at the Cotton Club. And I invited uh, a jazz uh, uh, producer, John Snyder. I invited big time Sarah. I invited uh, Bill Gilmore, who owned the, the clubs in Chicago, uh, Blues on Halstead and Blues, etc. and had just opened a Chicago Blues downtown here. And she did her little debut, and, and it was great. And then I just started working with her more and more. 
Shamika and I, I mean, it's, it's, it's a very, it's a wonderful, unusual relationship. Uh, her, her dad died when, when he was 60. Mm-hmm. And I had just, I, I guided her career from that, like, 10 years old to, um, to now. I, I walked her up the aisle when she got married. It's been, it's been a wonderful, incredible relationship and this is that's all in addition to the personal joy i get out of the songwriting and the and and the other aspects of it but um so at what point did you decide to become her manager um it was in uh i was managing her non in, in, in everything except legal, technical terms, uh, from the time that she was 15. And she, as an official she, thing or just as, huh? officially as a manager or somebody who just came No, for just, just, it was known within the family. It was known within the family and I would get her little gigs at small clubs in Connecticut and things like that that didn't pay any money. When her dad got to get, started to get sick with his heart problems, and uh, he asked her to go out and do shows with him, uh, she used to uh, she would get up and do like four songs, and she always says that she thought that that her dad acted like she was helping him, but it was really the other way around. He was starting to 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 groom her and right. to train her and. And before that, prior to that, he'd do a show downtown in Manhattan and he'd have, he'd say, and now I got a special guest who's going to get up and a 12 or 14 year old Shamika would get up. And to be honest, a lot of hardcore blues fans would just groan. It would just be like, oh no, I came to see Johnny Copeland and now no matter how cute or how talented I have to endure this, this kid. And what my wife and I started doing was if we'd see that a famous blues guy was in town, like Sun Seals or Gatemouth or Cotton, we would bring Shamika down to the show when she was 14 years old. She wasn't even allowed to be in the club. I got her into these clubs. And before the second set started, I would go up to Gatemouth and say, I've got this girl here who's incredibly talented. I'm a serious guy. I would never do anything to embarrass you. She's Johnny Copeland's daughter. You know Johnny and, 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 and you respect him. Would it be possible before you come out for the second set for her just to get up and do one song? It's just a double shuffle with your band. They always said yes. And she'd get up at 10.30 when the set started. She'd do My Daddy Sings the Blues. The place would go nuts. Gatemouth or Cotton would have her do one more song that that everybody knew could be Let the Good Times Roll or something horrible like that. And then we'd get her coat and, and get her home and the next day she's back at school. But anyway, so Johnny got sick. Johnny needed a heart transplant. Dr. Oz was his doctor. We spent uh, a year and a half with Johnny had a thing called an LVAD implanted in his chest, a left ventricle assistance, assistance device that did the pumping for his main 
artery. And uh, eventually he got his heart on, on um, New Year's Day. I don't remember the year. And uh, his body eventually rejected it, I think July 3rd of that same year. So about six months later, and he died. And my wife and I were there at the hospital with him until about 10.30 the night before. And I turned to her and I said, you know, it's just us and the family. And everybody tells us we're family, but we're not blood family. We have to leave these people alone with their, with, with their husband and their dad. And so we left. And uh, by this time, Johnny was like one, if not my best friend, like one of my three closest friends. And um, the next morning at eight o'clock, about three minutes after eight, I got a call from Shamika, and she said, my dad just died. And I said, uh, I'll be right out. And my wife and I went out to Teaneck, and when I got there, we, uh, I asked her how she was doing, and uh, I said, why don't we go for a walk? And so she and I went for an hour and a half walk, and we just talked about the future, and what she was going to do. And it was just understood that she was now going to have to make money for the family and that she was going to get into the, 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 the music and all that sort of stuff. And uh, when I went to the wake, as I was coming out of the wake, there was a booking agent named Steve Hecht and Steve came up to me and he said, are you managing Shamika? And I said, yes. And he said, uh, because this isn't an appropriate time to talk about it, but when you're ready, I'd really like you to consider me uh, as her booking agent. Really? And I, I said, that's wonderful. I'll, I'll give you a call next week. And I thought to myself, my God, we don't have a label. I'm just this, this half-assed manager who's got a, a serious job and, you know, this hasn't been real serious up until this point. And so um, now Shamika had, uh, had a bunch of songs that I'd written for her, a bunch of classics that she knew, a couple songs by her dad, and a booking agent. And so we would start getting gigs. And this is probably, uh, this is probably like 97 or something like that. Knowing what you knew about the business, yeah. and I don't know how much you knew about the business, yeah. but you knew something about it. What did you expect? Like what expectations did you have for her and her career? Did you think this was, a good thing and that she would be successful or did you realize how difficult it could be and it's probably good that I didn't think about how difficult it could be okay <laughs> all I really thought of and I don't mean this to be self-serving is that I loved her and um, we had to do something right I mean I've always told Shamika if she if, God forbid, she lost her voice, that's not the end of us. And, and you know, we find something else for her to do and, 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 and love 
love uh, goes on. But I didn't really think, I knew it was going to be tough. I, I knew it was going to be tough um, because I would call, I would talk to promoters and they would say to me, these are actual quotes. Well, I don't care that she's Johnny Copeland's daughter. What the hell has she ever done? Why should I pay her that? And, and uh, uh, that eventually grew into, um, I never paid her father that much money. You know, so you see, we had to go through a lot of that, a lot of that nonsense. And, and also, and, and just so you understand, this is a almost 17-year-old kid. And now we've got, to, we've got to find a band for her, we've got to build a band, and it's got to be people who are honorable people. This is not guys who are smoking weed out behind the... Not that there's anything wrong with that, but you know, you know what yeah, I mean. Yeah. The, the, these, these are guys who are going to be able to respect and get along with a 17-year-old girl and give her respect and realize that she's going to be their boss. And, and at this, by this point, are you thinking she has real talent? Oh, she's yeah. Now I knew she had real <laughs> talent. And, and, and um, it was just a matter of how much did I want to invest because I, I'm still working in advertising. Right. And how much did you know about managing? I knew nothing about managing. I didn't know anything about it. And I, I was lucky in that um, uh, some people gave me a free ride on that and other people didn't. You know, for instance, I had one guy who, who never ceased to point out that uh, this is not how it's done and things like that. Okay, so when you decide that you're going to manage, yeah. what expectations did you have for her? Was the goal, if she gets gigs, she'll make money, she can support the family, that's all I want, or I need to get her a record label? or What, what kind of thought went through your mind? The first thing was uh, was what you said. She's got to she's got to make enough money to to support the family. Um, the record deal, to be honest, came a little bit quicker, came a little bit sooner than I expected, and um, and then after we did the first record, and I saw the impact, I sat her down and I said, so. The short-range goal is that you're going to get better and better and bigger dates, and you're going to make more and more money. And did you know as a manager how you would do that? Yes. I'll tell you that in a sec. And I said the long-range goal is if there's a Mount Rushmore of the blues, of the female blues, you are going to be up there with Bessie and Coco and Ma Rainey. And I said, that's what I want. I said, I want you to be blues history. That's what you have to be. Because I said, you're that good. You have a gift. And How did she take that? Um, because that's a lot to lay on somebody. She, 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 you know, she took it, she took it, she took it well. And, and... Um, How confident was she of her own ability? She wasn't confident in the beginning, and um, 
she's confident. Well, you know, that's, that's a weird kind of thing because on the one hand, Shamika gets nervous before she goes on and she does almost every show, mm-hmm. okay? Which I've taught her and told her, you're not nervous, you're just excited, okay? But on the other hand, I've seen her in these situations where it's unbelievable pressure and she handles it really, really as cool as can be. The first time she was on the Conan O'Brien show, she was 17 years old. She was singing Turn the Heat Up from the first album. And I'm like, now don't be nervous. Don't be, you know, don't be nervous at all. And I'll be right back. And I left the dressing room and I went out and got coffee or something and came back and I opened the door and she's sleeping. She's napping in the dressing room at Conan before she goes on. So that that's that's confidence. Okay. And uh, uh, before she went on Letterman, everybody else was just pacing and a nervous wreck. And, and Willie Nelson was there the same night and it was a whole big deal. And she just killed. And so that when it's over, Letterman comes out and he say, all he could say was, oh my God, oh my God. And hugged her and kissed her and all. And, and, and the White House, there's President Obama. And, and she just, he's got, she's got President Obama clapping along to, to the music and singing the words and, um, and she's cool. And just one last thing. Two months ago, she sang the national anthem at right. the Meadowlands before the Giants played the Saints. 85,000 people, a little, you know, person in the middle of this bowl surrounded by 85,000 drunken football fans. And, um, and she, was, she was fine. So she does get excited before she goes on, no matter where it is. But she has a she she has a good you know she's got confidence, right. uh, and you know confidence is one of those things, man. I mean, you need it to write, you need it to do whatever you're going to do well. Mm-hmm. Surgeons got to have it, and uh, confidence in the right amount is is a, a really important thing, so that you're going to grow and get better and better. Right. So you have this successful advertising career you're making good money you're mm-hmm. traveling the world and at one point or another you decide you're going to give that up and become a full-time manager is that the correct way of saying that yeah yeah how difficult was that decision uh not as difficult as you would think because i i i made a fair amount of money and i've been smart with my money and i put my money aside and it was uh, i looked around the creative department where I was at BBDO. This is the company that does most of the, the, the commercials for the Super Bowl and stuff like that. And um, I just looked and, and I was the only 52-year-old bald guy there. And and they had been making a certain amount of money and they had picked them off one by one. Which and is not that uncommon in the... It's not uncommon at all. And because everybody wants youth and they can't believe that you can be edgy uh, and, and older. And um, so they just don't want to bring you into a, a meeting with a potential client and say, 
I've got the hottest, sharpest, edgiest, young, hippest team in the world. And then they bring in a bald 52-year-old guy. It, it's kind of tough to sell. Um, so I Sorry, thought, did you, knowing that that's the way the business is, yeah. did you resent it? How did you feel about that? Uh, I never got a chance to resent it because this, I was the luckiest guy in the world in that this, this, this opportunity presented itself. Um, uh, I just, I just segued. Uh, so anyway, I wasn't happy at, at work and Shamika was being courted by BB King's manager. And she was going to open for the Stones with Dr. John in uh, Chicago at the Aragon Ballroom. And all these things were happening. And my wife said to me, you know, you can go into advertising and, you know, you, you keep doing this. Uh, maybe you leave and go to a different agency. Maybe you'll like it better there. But there's this opportunity with Shamika and you built it so far and it's got potential and she's going to be on the stage right before the Stones and B.B. King's guy wants her. And, um, and so that's, that's the way I went. And uh, it was a big, uh, it was a big cut in pay. Mm -hmm. And it was the best thing I ever did. Big cut in pay, did that motivate you to make sure you succeed or did you not think about money? It's all been, it's, it's pretty much, to be honest, it, it's been pretty much all love and fun right. and, and, and not, not about money that much. I mean, all I really wanted was I had the money that I'd saved from advertising and I just didn't want to touch it. So I wanted to make enough money with Shamika. I wanted to make all the money I could for her so that she could, you know, be as successful. And I still want that. But in the beginning, uh, 17 years ago, it was just, if I can make enough money that I don't have to touch my savings, that I can go out and have Japanese food three times a week and take two vacations a year and <laughs> and not dress too shabbily, then then I can keep this thing going and growing and bigger and bigger and bigger. And uh, I'm so glad it was just, it was, it was the luckiest thing I ever did. It's interesting how life kind of works out. I mean, I always yeah. find it interesting yeah. talking to musicians and how they have their little, not little, but they get their big break and it's never planned. Yeah. Something just happens. They were at the right place at the right time. Yeah. And this opportunity came yeah. up and that lit something. Yeah. And you think about your career in advertising and, and your love of writing and, yeah. and that turned into songwriting. Right, right. And then meeting right. Johnny Copeland and then right. this. It's right. You know what? Even if you think about... Um, I've, been, I've been with my wife for 43 years mm -hmm. and everybody will say, oh, wow, 43 years, that's great. How did you do it? Well, we didn't do anything. <laughs> we just... Uh, uh, it was... It, it, a lot of it is, like you say, it's luck. What would have happened if you didn't do this or you hadn't met there or you hadn't? And, and that's, that's kind of the way it is. It's like with marriage. Nobody gets married and says, you know, I'm going to get divorced in three years. No, everybody has, goes into it with the best of intentions. But luck and all sorts of things 
Come yeah. into your life. But also the fact that your wife said maybe you should. Oh, she gets all the. This. She gets total total credit for that. I find the concept of luck very interesting. It is. Um, it is. So, as you try to learn to become a manager, mm. was that a difficult process? Did you make mistakes along the way? Uh, yeah, I made mistakes along the way, and. Um, uh, luckily, not too egregious, but but it was uh, it was definitely on the job training. We had one one mistake I made was we had a date at a festival that I won't name in Italy, and we had a wonderful time over there. And uh, the way these things work is you get fifty percent deposit before you leave, and then they fifty percent when the gig is done. And a lot of guys, they always say uh, they won't go on the day of the show until they get paid first, and then they'll, they'll, they'll go on. So here we are, and I'm young at managing, and Shamika's young, and we're playing this festival away from home in Italy. And the guy comes up and he says, uh, I, I don't have the cash for the, 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 the rest of it because um, uh, the bank is closed today, and, but I'm giving you a check. And in fact, I'm giving you a little extra because you're going to have to convert this from euros into to dollars and everything. And don't worry about it and blah, blah, blah. And he had been so nice and so gracious and everything had been terrific. We were doing a show with Cool and the Gang and Ike Turner. And Shamika was getting an award for the Italian Blues Singer of the Year or something silly like that. And we got home and that check bounced. And I mean... I went after them and uh, no response at all. And I had the booking agency go after them and they got no response. And then not knowing what I was doing, I said to the booking agent, I said, you know, well, I thought that was the idea, having a booking agent. You, 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 you'd help us make sure that we get this money. Right. And, and, and the guy said, well, uh, we get you the, the, the 50%, but you're there. It's your job to get the other 50 before you come home. And what recourse do we have if somebody's in, you know, Mamma Mia, Italy? Right. And uh, what eventually happened, so that was a mistake. But what eventually happened was I spoke to another Italian promoter. And he said, well, when are you coming over? We want you to come over and play. I said, we're not going back to Italy. Why? I said, because we had a very bad experience there. Two days later, we had the money. Hmm. So I don't know what was involved there and, and why, but uh, the one promoter obviously talked to the other promoter and, uh, and we got the dough. But that was, that was a mistake on, on my part. I, I, I did some other things that maybe were smart because of my naivete. You know, if somebody would say, uh, some, uh, we had a gig in Washington, when she, D.C., when she was 17, $350 to open for B.B. King. And um, that meant that uh, uh, I, I, could, uh, I couldn't take any, any percentage out of that. And Shamika was going to lose money. And I went to the band and I said, who totally different people than now. And I said, we're going to lose money. We're going to have to drive down there back the same night. And uh, will you guys take a cut or help us out? 
And the band universally said, no, it's her name on the thing and we got to get paid, blah, blah, blah. But she got to open up for B.B. King and she got to know B.B. and B.B. got to see her off stage. And before you knew it, we had we were opening shows for him. Um, so, um, you know, it's been like that. Yeah. yeah. How much did your advertising background or your business background in advertising help? These are really great questions because I never, <laughs> I, I, I don't think of that, that very often. Uh, my wife and other people say that it's helped a lot. It's helped a lot in that um, aside from take, remove my love for Shamika, uh, if I just look at Shamika as a brand and how to sell a brand, it's been a big help that way. And right now, it's a help uh, expanding her market, for instance. And uh, Can I ask you about that? Like, yeah. She is in a category that's a little different. I mean, she is blues, but she's yeah. obviously not just doing blues. Her right. latest album is an example of that. Right. Um, is that a conscious effort? Yes, yes, okay. yes. But that's not, you know, I've, I've had this discussion with many musicians. Yeah. Just saying we want to expand beyond the blues doesn't necessarily mean it's going to happen. Right. And when you right. when you decide that you would manage her, yeah, and you kind of understood the the blues landscape, I'm sure you saw some limitations in what that would offer. But how difficult was it to say let's expand it, let's let's make it bigger? Because there aren't that many people in the blues at her level. Well, you know, everything happens in stages. So. Um, you know, the first the first one is uh, uh, getting discovered and getting your name out there and making a great first impression. And we were really fortunate in that uh, Turn the Heat Up, her first album, was nominated for all sorts of awards. Uh, we were fortunate that it was put out on Alligator Records, which had the... Uh, which made sure that virtually every blues fan in the world had heard her or knew of her by the time we finished her second album, right. which then became nominated for a Grammy. Okay, so now we've got your name out there and everybody knows who you are. Now, how do we show that you're an artist and you're not a, just a blues artist? Right. And that, that was... Uh, 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 I thought, well, well, who can we work with that will show that she's got more and different talent than she, she's shown on the first two records? And I went to Bruce at Alligator and I said, I want Dr. John. And uh, because I said that's related to what she's doing. And he's a great name and, and we will benefit greatly from association. And he said, again, establishing her artistic credentials. Right. And Bruce said to me, he said, well, why would we want to mess with this? You, you, Jimmy Vivino, and I have done the first two records. We just got, got nominated for a Grammy. Why would we want to go with somebody else the next time? This is working. And I said, because she deserves it. I said, she deserves better than you, Jimmy, and I to, for growth. Right. And so we did that. Now, how do we grow from that? Next, we do Steve Cropper, and, and, and because it's related, and a lot of songs that Shamika had been doing at that time 
I always said were stacks and stones. And so he fit in perfectly. Now they're starting to, to be kind of a little bit of a sameness to what we're doing. And, and it's like uh, uh, sales are, are, are starting to level off and plateau. Right. And um, which is, and, and I felt that creatively um, we were being held back a little bit because Alligator Bruce in particular, who I love like a brother, um, has certain types of things that he likes and certain types of things that he doesn't. So we left and we went to Telarc and that is really, that marked the beginning of the new uh, Shemika. It also marked the period where she finally had something to say for herself. She finally started to know who she was. She wasn't a 17-year-old kid or a 21-year-old who hadn't had a chance to really be a, you know, a teenager because she was out there working, working, working. Now she's, she's away from the, 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 the label that she started with. She doesn't have to sing about her daddy anymore. And she doesn't have to sing blues standards. She can start coming into her own. And it was at that point that we looked around and said, uh, you know, how do we really separate you from everybody else? And how do we make sure that, the way I described it to her was, the blues business isn't thriving, and and it's even worse off today. Mm-hmm. How do we make sure that when all the blues clubs close down and the festivals close down or whatever happens, um, that you're still at least working at Carnegie Hall, Lincoln Center, the Kennedy Center, a theater in San Francisco for the rest of your life. How do we get you to that level, a special level? And what's going to make you different? Um, there already was a Coco Taylor, uh, and everybody says you're the heiress to, to Coco Taylor. Um, you're the queen of the blues, and that's... Uh, a blessing and a curse. Mm-hmm. And and once you're the queen of the blues, where do you go from here? Right. What do you do now? And so um, that gets us to, we, 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 we did a series of albums with Oliver Wood from the Wood Brothers. And the intention in the beginning was everything with, with Alligator. And this is not, I, I love those alligator records and I love being with alligator now. Right. It's just we're talking evolution. I'm not saying one's better than the other, but if alligator was horns and and guitar solos and all those traditional blues made a little bit hipper, um, we wanted to go the opposite way. And Oliver Wood had the Wood Brothers with his brother Chris from Medetsky Martin Wood stand-up, doghouse bass, acoustic guitar, more contemporary things lyrically. And so we did three albums that way. In the process, she and I sort of developed a vision for what 
who, who, who she could be in the marketplace, what this brand could stand for. And what it was, was somebody who had, who, who, who was, had been based in traditional blues, but was writing about issues that were important to contemporary modern women. And that she was going to be a voice for contemporary women. And that they have the blues too. They just have to worry about a roofie in their drink, an abusive husband, uh, uh, the same political issues that, that you and I would be concerned about. Right. But, but it would be now. It would, be, it would not be my man left me ain't that sad. And Shamika does, wouldn't rather go blind than lose your love. Right. Because a contemporary woman has her own job and she's often making more money than the guy who's, you know, who's leaving her. So, so it, was, it was really intentionally positioning her in the marketplace. So that was how she started to develop blues-wise and become a little bit different. And I have to tell you, in the process, we lost some traditional fans and, um, and uh, not happy about it, but it was okay. And then we thought, where are we going to find new fans and how are we going to grow? And she is devoted to the blues and she does love the blues and she'll always represent the blues. Um, and we looked at Americana and just said, all that music is based on the blues, country, bluegrass, what, whatever it is. So we can go there and we're allowed to do that. And what we want to do is we really want to re It's not we want to leave the blues. We want to take the blues and reintroduce it to the Americana people who should have the blues in there already. So was it hard to go back to Alligator? No, it was wonderful to go back to Alligator because Alligator uh, is a great label. Nobody could do a better job of, of getting her message out there than they do. Mm -hmm. They work their asses off for a blues label they're, 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 or any label. They're, they're, they're great. Right. They're absolutely great, man. So and the result of the, the latest... Look what they album. did with this new one. Yeah. Which, so and, and there they are. They're reaching out to... To uh, they've never had uh, a, a record uh, um, with this kind of visibility in the Americana market, and they've just run with it and 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 and, and been great. So um, I love that song, John Prine. Oh, isn't it great? And I just had it in my car, and so I didn't know who it was. What Great Rain? Yes. Yeah. Well, let me tell you, we were out in Chicago, and. We had a date. Uh, Renee Fleming called. Uh, she's the head of the the, uh, the the Chicago Opera thing, and she wanted to have an evening with Chicago artists. And of course, Shamika's lived there for years. John Prine used to be a mailman in a suburb of Chicago, and uh, the Handsome family, and Michelle Williams, who was in. Beyonce's first group, whatever that was called, Destiny or Destiny Dynasty Child. or whatever. Destiny Child? Yeah, yeah. And, um, and Shamika. And rehearsals, sound check was going on. And I was sitting in the, the audience in this empty opera house. 
next to Fiona Prime, John's wife. And she said, you know, it's so nice to meet you and it's so nice to meet Shamika and wouldn't it be fun if we did some dates together? And I said, well, I can go home now. She said, what do you mean? I said, well, I'm going to go back to New York. I said, I, I, I don't need to do anything else. And she said, what do you mean? I said, you don't think I came out here to see the opera? <laughs> I said, I came out here because John Prine is on this thing. And I love John Prine and Shamika loves John Prine and all that stuff. So um, next thing I know, uh, uh, a few months later, I get a call and she invites us to do a benefit for... for for Thistle Farms, which is this wonderful um, charity that works with abused women in, in Nashville, and uh, to do a show at the Ryman with John, uh, Jason Isbell, Amanda Shires, and uh, Reba McIntyre. Wow. So we did that. And uh, about two months ago, we just did a show with John out in LA. And uh, I got a text from her last Friday inviting us to do a show with them at the Ryman again this, this April with, uh, with uh, John Prine and uh, Brandy Carlisle. Wow. So when we were in the Opera House backstage, I said uh, that uh, we're going to be doing our next record in, uh, in Nashville. And we'd sure love it if you'd play on it. He said, you're going to do it in Nashville? I said, yeah. He said, uh, who's producing it? And I said, Will Kimbrough. He said, oh, I love him. And I said, and, and I've written a couple songs with Mary Gaucher. He says, you did? And I said, yeah. He says, wow. He said, well, if you're going to, be, if you're going to do it in Nashville, I'll be there. And um, so we were high as can be with that, but then we had to figure out what we were going to do. And... I, in my heart, I thought, you know what I want to do? I want to write a song with him. And I thought, but man, that's, 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 that's really pushing it. <laughs> and I don't want to lose him because he's so great. And so I started going through all my old John Prine songs. And I found this song, Great Rain. And uh, it's it just basically, it was the bluesiest thing that he'd ever done. And uh, we told them that that was what we wanted to do. And we recorded in their studio called The Butcher Shop out there. How many takes did you do of that song? Uh, maybe two. Yeah, I mean, it just maybe seems two. really spontaneous. It was spontaneous. Yeah. And when he said that, that little bit at the end That's about... the brilliant. Yeah, yeah, take the rest of the day off. Uh, you know, he is so wonderful. It, you feel like you're with a funny, holy man. And he's just the most regular guy. I have to tell you, this gig that we did in, in L.A., before I went out there, I read an article in the Times, New York Times, that said that John always travels with a bag of mustard and ketchup when he goes overseas because they never have the kind of mustard and ketchup that he likes. Well, I had just gotten back from Switzerland with Shamika, and we were in an old German restaurant there that had this gourmet mustard and tubes and so I took two of the tubes and I ran into him in L.A. last month and I said, uh, uh, I know I'm a week late, but, but happy birthday. And he said, oh, thanks a lot. I said, well, I, I got you something. And he, I, he said, what? And I reached into my pocket and I gave him these two tubes of mustard. 
and he stuck his hand out right away and he's pumping my arm and then he's Fiona look what look what John gave me for my birthday and it was like I gave him a million dollars but he has this wonderful kid like quality mm-hmm. to him. and he's such a regular down to earth guy so we did great rain we did it in two takes he gave us that wonderful uh, little comment at the end of the song about take the rest of the day off and then Will, the producer, said, John, uh, I want you to just listen to this other song we cut. And it's the, it's a song I wrote with Will called Ain't Got Time for Hate. Right. And in that song, the idea was I wanted to get as, fa- as many famous Nashville Americana people backing Shamika up. Because I thought if I get these people on this record before anybody hears it, they're going to say, this is an Americana record. She's got the cream of the Americana people are giving them her their imperator. And so we had uh, we had Emmy Lou Harris on there and uh, Tommy Womack and Mary Gaucher. And uh, John listens to it and he says, that's a great song. And then Will said, like it was just popping into his head, hey, I just thought of something. You know, it would be great. Why don't you, would you, would you mind singing Ain't Got Time for Hate? No, not at all. And he went right in. So he's hidden in that chorus, wow. but he's there. And for me, as a writer, having John Prine singing background on something I wrote, I mean, shoot me now. <laughs> it was the best. It was the best. How um, much time are you spending writing these days? I write every day. Yeah? I write every day, and I don't write good every day. And to be honest, I'm not writing well right now, but I know it'll pass. And I, I just get little pieces. So how does it, do you like set time that says? No, well? no, no. I, uh, I have a lot of ideas on scraps. And of course now the, 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 the iPhone takes the place of the scraps. And uh, I just put them all down there. And um, uh, when, it, when it becomes time, I'll, um, I'll, I'll start putting them together. I mean, right now, I know I have five solid songs already done for the next record. And, but, but I don't have the umbrella theme of how to connect them all. And so some, be, some may die and, right. and some, some might not. But you're not writing the music. No, yeah. no. I always, I, I usually have an idea for the tempo or the style of the music, and every time the musician always comes up with something better than than I ever did. Right. And um, well, you talk about that unique relationship between Shmiki and you. Hmm. Tell me about the manager relationship with, like, how much when you say we're going to do this. I'm, my understanding is. She always has the final say. Of course. Of course. But how does that work? Like in terms of, okay, well, let's the try way to it do works, this. The, 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 it works very well because um, uh, I just inducted her dad two years ago. I had to give the speech inducting him into the Blues Hall of Fame. And Shamika's mom and her aunt were out there. Shamika couldn't be. She had to, she was touring someplace and she had a, a high paying gig that she couldn't cancel. But we were having dinner and Shamika's aunt gave me the biggest compliment. She said, with you, it's never been about the money. And 
So what that means is that, uh, simply put, it's a matter of trust. Mm -hmm. And uh, Shamika has seen over the years that, I mean, I, I don't want to get into all the specifics, but, uh, well, for instance, I don't take money from her merchandise sales, okay? She's out there. She's working hard on, on, on the stage. She's sleeping away from home. She, she makes money selling her own merch, and it can be significant. Mm -hmm. um, she deserves to keep that, okay? Most managers don't do things like that. Uh, I, th I think so that things like that build trust in the beginning if she wasn't making money I don't make money if she's making just a little money I wouldn't take it I wouldn't take my share um, and uh, I, th I think that builds trust but really there's nothing compared to knowing somebody from the time that they're eight years old until now I have a I, I had an operation a few years ago. She flew in for it. She didn't have to do that. You know, uh, uh, she and I were having dinner one night in, uh, in Paris in a really nice restaurant. And there was a Connecticut, Westchester type of perfect American family. Okay, they're all blonde and they're all good looking and they all have straight teeth and they're, they're all... Brooks Brothers wardrobed out and she uh, Shamika looked over at them and then she said to me she said do you think those kids have any idea how lucky they are and I said I can guarantee you that they have no idea at all and she said well I just want you to know I know how lucky I am and I said what do you mean and she said well my dad uh, always said he was going to get me out of Harlem and he did and you made sure that I stayed out of Harlem and got, you know, to a better quality of life. And um, two fathers. Mm -hmm. And um, it's corny and all that, but that's what it is. So, so management-wise, there's nothing, you know, there's, there's, it, it's pretty smooth that way. It's At pretty one point when you decided to become a manager, you thought... Okay, we're going to get her to a certain level. And I know you're probably never contented where she is. No. But are you happy with where she is? And like, in some ways, it's pretty impressive. You want to know what I'm happy? I, I am real. I'm not happy where she is. Uh, and I won't be happy until... Uh, uh, I'll tell you what would make me happy. Well, first of all, where she is. I'm excited. I've never been this excited about where she's been for years because I really think we're reaching more and more new people. She's being perceived as an artist, as I said, beyond just a, a blues artist and, and that it's going to open up new things for her. If she wants to make an album of Bolivian polka music with a blues twist, now she'll be allowed to because she's the, she's the I'm not like everybody else right. kinks girl. And Although if she did say, I want to do that, and you thought this was not a good idea. Oh, I would you... tell her for sure. And then I would tell her again that it wasn't a good idea. And then I would do everything I could to make it good right. and to make it work. And she's got the final say. 
it's 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 her um but uh you know we've just had uh i mean think about it it's it's like 30 you know 31 years together 31 years we we've we've been to you know bombay and 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 you know brazil and the white house i mean being in the white house with her i mean it was it was extraordinary and by the way that is something that people saw that show i don't know if you saw that but the song that she sang mm -hmm. it's called beat up old guitar i wrote that song for her father after he died and so for Shamika and I, it has an entirely different meaning for anybody else who's ever going to hear it. And her dad had died, and I had to write something, and this was cathartic. And he had had nine open heart surgeries wow. by Dr. Oz. So that, you know, the joke within the family was, why don't they just put a zipper in next time and, 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 and do that? And... Um, uh, but I thought, how can I, I thought his body's like an old beat up guitar. And um, so I wrote this song and before I did anything musically, we had her mom and dad, uh, her mom and, and Shamika for dinner in our apartment. And I said, you know, I wrote something about Johnny the other day and uh, listen to this. And so I read them the lyrics and like any good host, it was wonderful. They're, they were all crying immediately, you know, and uh, 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 I felt bad about that. But uh, I knew we had a, a, a strong song. And then I would go up to um, whatever it was, CBS, I guess, where Conan was at the time. And I did the, uh, the music with Jimmy Vivino uh, up, at, up at Conan's show. And now here we are, and it's 20-some years later, and she's in the White House, and she's singing that song for, for uh, President and Mrs. Obama. And it's an emotional time anyway, because when you're there, when I was there, the first thing I thought of was, I wish my mom and dad were alive to see this, or to hear that my song is being played for the president. You know, so we, we've gone through things like that together. She came to, a, uh, I, I produced two tours to Iraq right. and Kuwait. And so the first one I went over by myself and checked it out and did whatever we did with Bobby Rush. And then um, the second, I said, Shamika, I said, this is doable. I said, I wouldn't ask you to do anything that I wouldn't do and that wasn't safe. And so she said, well, if you're going, I'm going. And so we, we've had, it's a special relationship, mm -hmm. you know. I remember, although I kind of question what I remember these days as I get older, but <laughs> I don't know if you remember this, but we were in Natalden, Norway. Yeah. And this was right before, or it was right around the time that I think the Letterman thing happened. Mm -hmm. And I think you told me, like there was a moment where you had found out mm -hmm. That she was going to go on Letterman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was in Norway. And you, yeah. I don't know how why we were in, but yeah. we were in the, 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 um, 
the dining room together yeah, yeah, and yeah, you yeah. told me and I know how excited you were. Oh, and I yeah. see that same excitement yeah. today when you talk yeah. about so many of the things that's, yeah. Yeah. that you've experienced yeah. with him. It's I, I, I have to tell you, my friend, I'm seeing 15 guys that I went to high school with tomorrow night for dinner and they get a vicarious thrill out of this whole thing because right. they remember me in this horrible little high school band. <laughs> and now... The last time I saw them for dinner, one of the guys said, yeah, I turn on the TV and I'm watching the show at the White House and there's Han. And I'm saying, what the hell is Han doing at the White House? And you can't miss him because his bald head is back there and it's catching the light and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and and uh, the point is, I, 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 and, and they, say, they say to me, do you know how lucky you are? Do you know how lucky you are that you're able to do this? You know, you travel all around the world. You've got this great artist. You get to write and have Buddy Guy play guitar on something you wrote. And, 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 yeah, man. I mean, Jesus. I, I would never want to jinx it. I am so grateful. And as you said before, the luck, there, there ought to be more scientific experiments about what luck is and mm-hmm. and, and oh, maybe we should synchronous synchronous yeah maybe we shouldn't maybe we should because this is, this is so, yeah. so I always love talking to people who have had this kind of joy in their lives mm-hmm. multiple times mm-hmm. and you have a, an amazing relationship it's not yeah. a business relationship right. it's a very right. special relationship. yeah yeah I I want to thank you uh, oh, I have to wrap thank this up you. But, Thank you so much for doing this. Uh, I hope I about... didn't ramble, you know, too much. But... No, that's great. <laughs> How could you not love that enthusiasm? Uh, Thank you so well, much for sharing that. Uh, thanks very much. Mm-hmm.